Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. My guest today is the American economist, entrepreneur, author, and academic, Professor Carl Schramm. Described by The Economist as the evangelist of entrepreneurship, his is a message and call to action that the world needs more entrepreneurs because there is much to play for from the way we might successfully face future pandemics or build prosperity. It is to entrepreneurs and not establishments that we should look. His book, Burn the Business Plan, has been described as the killer guide to going it alone and asserts that great innovators have one thing in common, their appetite for risk. Now, my own first meeting with Carl came some 10 years ago where I remember the power of his prose and his pitch that to become an entrepreneur is to become a searcher. Carl, welcome to Changemakers. Let's talk about that role of the entrepreneur as the searcher. Well, thanks for having me. I do think every entrepreneur is a searcher and it comes in sort of three different varieties. First of all, got to remember that entrepreneurs in the end, the ones who are successful are kind of restless. And I want to keep pointing us to successful entrepreneurs generally start in mid uh, career. So much of our literature is, is wound up and forces the notion that if you haven't done it by the time you're 21 or 22, it's not going to happen. That's absolutely fallacious. So what it tells us about is something about the person internally searching for something more. They're in a company. The company's not doing the right innovation. They're frustrated. They're dedicated to the company. But at some point, they say, I'm going to go do this myself. Second, second aspect of it is uh, I think they see, I mean, I teach this in my course on innovation. They see that something can be done better, better or faster or cheaper. And it's almost like they get an itch to go fool around with it. And you see this again and again where people go home. They have one job. They're a clerk or whatnot. And by Jove. Your, your, your fellow countryman, Dyson, is a perfect example of this, having tinkered with a vacuum cleaner for the love of Pete, and then living with his, you know, off of his wife's income, it became obsessional. I had a neighbor in Baltimore, I tell a story in uh, the book, Howard Head, terrible athlete, wanted to ski. And he's the guy who one day said, you know, if I had better equipment, I could be a better athlete. Now, before Howard Head, People didn't think that way. It was a profound searching inside the man. Third thing is they have to search about, you know, how to start a business, right? Is this right for me? And that's where they have to come to grips with risk taking. And, and as they search themselves, you never talk to an entrepreneur who doesn't say, because of that process, I learned much more about me. It's almost philosophical, philosophical psychology. It goes to their existential essence of who they are. And that's what I really meant by searcher. Mm. I mean, one of the things that I always think about, we often struggle with actually a, a real definition of what an entrepreneur is as opposed to a, a business owner. I think when I heard you talk about the idea of the searcher, I thought, well, that actually is part of what gives it real differentiation, you know, a term that many people are often uncomfortable with in terms of what is it, what does it mean? But you've spoken about the fact that the world needs more entrepreneurs. So tell us, who are they and why we need more of them? Well, let's go at that backward. I'm an economist fundamentally. And when I got to the Kauffman Foundation in the year 2002, after having been an entrepreneur and an investor, okay, and a professor, and I was asked to take over this foundation. Well, it turned out like a lot of people, I had already started a business without even hearing that I was an entrepreneur. The firm was, the, the phrase wasn't even use, okay? People used to start businesses. They were business starters. We didn't have a word for it in the United States. And the word entrepreneur didn't come in until like 1970. So to your question, I began to look at it from an economist perspective. I looked at all the literature that was lying around and they were all these how to become an entrepreneur. 
it's just, it was basically junk and it is still pretty much junk. The stuff that comes out of business professors and a lot of people in Silicon Valley write these silly, silly books, you know, because they started one company. So they're an expert on all companies. I would exclude, by the way, Peter Thiel's book from that, from that junk pile, if you will. It's a very good book. So I looked at it from a macroeconomic perspective. Maybe we could define what this entrepreneur phenomenon is in terms of the big economy. Why do we need these people? And the answer, of course, lies with a, a, a long dead uh, professor of economics, Joseph Schumpeter. And he saw the entrepreneurs as the people who challenge big companies. And I repurposed his insight by saying, it's the entrepreneurs who restart our economy. Okay. And the more of them we have, the healthier we grow. So the Schumpeter idea of creative destruction of actually replacing status quo. Is this what you mean when you when you and others write about things like the frontier economy? I mean, is that is that where new things are created? Yeah, it, it, you know, the, the metaphor is basically you got a frontier out there. You, you get up to a point, everybody knows what's going on. What's over the frontier, okay? And those are where the searchers are. They're out there, they have, there used to be a phrase in the United States, maybe it's in, London, in England too, you know, people used to have ants in their pants. They want to get on they want to get on to the we, next thing. We've got that. <laughs> yeah, they want to get on to the next thing. And in, an, and in kind of an intellectual, psychological way, people at the frontier, they want to know, okay, we got all this massive new technology. What's the next step? Okay. How far can we go with this? Can we turn around the corner and see what happens with all this stuff we have right now? So, so the journey is often one that is taken in, in a hurry. But it's also one that is often taken at great risk. And I think, you know, when when the economist called you the evangelist of entrepreneurship, I mean, somebody asked me, what what did I think of Carl? And I I talked about you as being the, you know, the entrepreneur's economist. And I think the reason why that often is, is because you seem to be able to not only get conceptually the idea of risk emotionally, but also, I guess, from an economist's eye, the understanding of the importance of risk in the way that progress is made in the story of companies and the story ultimately of nations. Yes. I think the key is I, w- I was trained as an economist. I never spent a moment in a business school. The difference is night and day. Business professors teach case studies. So they look at one thing, they try to draw history. They actually manipulate the history because they're using it as a teaching tool. Okay. Economists want macro data. What to a thousand firm? What to, what's the history of a thousand firms? Five thousand firms. Okay, can you imagine when I got to the Kauffman Foundation, the United States government didn't have a empirical measure of how many new businesses were started every year. Okay, when I came upon that, I said, "Boom, my presidency is going to be successful because if we don't do another damn thing, we're going to measure how these how many of these businesses start because if there's credence to my thesis." that these are the folks who restart the economy, particularly in recessions, we ought to be able to measure it, okay? And uh, the same thing holds, you know, globally now at OECD and, you know, around the globe, people are measuring this stuff. Mm. I mean, a lot of the, I guess, our interaction has come at a time of a a great renaissance, if you like, for the idea of, of you know, the self-starter, the startup, the the scale-up, the entrepreneur, through your work in creating Global Entrepreneurship Week or Startup America. Obviously, I was one of the co-founders of Startup Britain. And one of the things that, you know, you've spoken about 
really, I, I think, convincingly is the importance of young firms to net job creation in terms of being, so not necessarily young people, but young firms in terms of their their huge and disproportionate influence to the future. P- pick up the story for us, Carl, in terms of where this is going now. Well, I'd make one small correction. I don't think we're having a renaissance. I think we're really at the beginning of understanding who these folks are. And at like the beginning of a lot of these things, a, a lot of the narrative that's built is totally wrong and it's actually counterproductive. And we get back in that in a minute. But, it, it, you know, when I tripped upon this question of how important are these firms to restarting any economy? And by the way, the implications for foreign development are of enormous consequences because among other things, it points to the horrible part of, of uh, corruption where you can't start these companies, okay? But let's go back to it. The minute we began to look at, you know, just measuring these companies, the next question was, well, what's their impact on job creation? And it turned out, again, a discovery of basic research, which economists do and business professors could never do, okay? It turned out we were in the zone of 80% of new job creation in the United States every year. It was in young companies, companies less than five years old. And it stood to reason. These are companies, you know, as I say in my book, okay, we have a great idea together, right? Okay. So, you know, you do your thing in London. I do my thing. I'm like a scholar. I'm an investor, blah, blah, blah. And we start a great idea, but we're two brainiacs. We need people on the ground to go execute, to go sell the stuff, to build the software. Okay. So we got to go, you know, if you and I start a business, uh, if we're going to be a high potency business, it means we hire one person in the first 12 months who's not a member of our family, important distinction, Right. But the likelihood is we'll have five employees, 12. You know, I'm an investor in a lot of companies and man, it's incredible. You know, they go from two people to 85 people in one company. I have some money in in four years. Okay. I'm just wondering if this show is the is the live creation of a startup between us, Carl. I mean, this, be, could be, could this could be a completely <laughs> different pitch for a new show. You're right. But, How's the pandemic playing out, do you think, in terms of does it does it go back to, you know, you, you mentioned Schumpeter earlier on and, and his idea that, you know, kind of old orders are replaced by new orders. I mean, is that how you see the pandemic or, or do you see this as something that has really been, you know, a, a period of true hurt for a lot, a lot of businesses and puts the cause of entrepreneurship back? Well, good for you. I've been, you know, I, for first first 16 years of my career, I was a professor of public health at the Johns Hopkins here in Baltimore. I'm one of the few economists who ever even dealt with this, okay? My focus was was on hospital cost containment, which led to my first company. But good for you. You've asked an incredible question. Is this sort of a Schumpeterian challenge uh, to business, okay? Because it's really fundamentally changed things. And you know, if you just look at the artifices, so the artificial data, if you will, who's going to fill those office buildings in our major cities anymore? Is anybody going back there? right? Will the restaurant industry, service industry come back? Will the theater industry come back? You know, this is a fundamental challenge to what Schumpeter would have called incumbent firms, okay? It also plays against the big political backdrop of basically, you know, not just the United States, pretty much in Western Europe, but well, I'll just talk about the United States. You know, the challenge is the predominant incumbent player on our economy is government, Okay. And that's the huge question right now is, hey, hold on. This is a pandemic. It's not an invitation for the government to take over every aspect of of industry. Okay, so you've asked a really interesting question. How it plays out here. The last thing I'd say on this is I think uncovered in our media. But boy, I have a house in Florida. I happen to be at a farm in Maryland today. 
and the difference couldn't be more stark. Here, everybody is, you know, they're almost, uh, my wife calls it Stockholm syndrome. You know, you see people, she always jokes about, well, you, you see people on bicycles riding out here in the countryside, one person with two masks on. Okay. What? It's Stockholm syndrome. Florida, Florida completely open. But the point I want to make is, I don't think our government sees, I'm sure they don't, and I, I know our press doesn't see, I think there's a pressure dome building in America. All you have to look at is yesterday's daily loads on American airplanes, which we measure through who goes through TSA. It was 1.5 million people. Before the pandemic broke out, it was 2.1 million people flew every day in the United States. Well, guess what? The government does everything it can to dampen people. CDC is constantly telling us airplanes are dangerous. Don't travel. Don't leave home, blah, blah, blah. Americans are not hearing it anymore. They've had it. And, and the government's credibility as, a, as an expert producer of advice to people is out the window. So where we go from here, I mean, you've written about public and private and the pandemic and really a, a call for empowering private institutions to help improve responses. And it strikes me that there is this kind of, you know, battle that you're laying out here about establishments and entrepreneurs. I mean, in terms of you know, you've talked about the, you know, the rise of the government as being this sort of all important economic architect. But is that something that we now should look at as a more permanent style of, of governing in kind of liberal democracies? Or do you see actually this is the temporary state of emergency where actually we might see a return to form a little bit further down the line when, you know, you do see broader reopenings? Or, or do you think something's changing? I think something is changing, actually, in a sense. I, I call it the etiquette of government. Government's so overplayed its hands with the police power. I mean, imagine this. The other day, the CDC, the Centers for Communicable Diseases, has the power to exempt people from paying rent across the United States for the next six months. What has that got to do with public health, people are asking? Okay, So it's hard to predict but there is a lots of action going on at our state legislatures, and they're going to push us to a constitutional crisis that they will win. Okay, that is to say, we're a federation of republics, and the states are gearing up to really, really challenge the federal government on every frontier. Public health was supposed to be a state it, under our constitution. It's a state responsibility, and you know it's been abrogated by the federal government and. A lot of people who are just terribly uncomfortable with that. I mean, moving this on from the pandemic to the other big issue of our time, climate change. Obviously, Britain is hosting COP26, the, the, the World Conference on Climate Change, later this year. A lot of you know political voices have begun to co-opt entrepreneurship into the narrative about how how the planet is ultimately saved through innovation through creativity and through the ability of of entrepreneurs to to make a difference on on a, on a big problem you've also at the same time highlighted the point that for many any advance in business is is basically at the cost of the destruction of the environment i mean t tell us about the t you know the potential tensions here between you know, wealth creators as saviors of the planet, but also at the same hand, at the same time, being being its destroyers. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll give you a two-part answer. The first goes to the question of the nexus between economic growth, which is you know stimulated, as we've said, the spark plug of economic growth is entrepreneurship. Okay. 
But there's a counter narrative and it was really loudly declared during the, uh, not loudly, people didn't get it right, but boy, my ears heard it and most economists heard it, you know, loudly declared narrative that all economic expansion comes at the cost of the environment, okay? It's statistically incorrect, incredibly incorrect. The United States, which is growing this year, we're going to, if we're lucky, we'll grow at 6% GDP. Every unit, every UTOL, as theoretical economists call it, since 1970 forward, every GDP gain is come at less carbon use, okay? So it's happening in the private sector, right? The second half of it is very dangerous, I think. You know, first it starts out, we have all these programs around universities that are stimulating entrepreneurship. They don't really create businesses in any particular way. Kids are too young for it. And the narrative that universities teach for the most part is not fact-based and it's incorrect. It's a huge waste of human capital. But one of the things that perturbs me in particular is Almost every one of these university laboratories, particularly in, in broken down cities in the United States, we have about 19 or 20 failed cities. We have about 53 cities that are on growth spurts you can't believe. But the narrative is your job as an entrepreneur is to save your hometown. And the double narrative is now your job as an entrepreneur is to stop climate destruction. Well, for heaven's sakes, again, let's go back. You and me, we start a business today. Okay. I don't know. We're going to do a comedy show, let's say because you're in broadcasting. We're not going to worry about saving Baltimore or London. But, but, a lot of, but, but a lot of, if I can just, just come in, Carl, I mean, a, yeah. lot, a, lot of, a lot of the guys I've been interviewing on, on the show, a lot of entrepreneurs will turn around and say, well, that's exactly what we do. We see, <laughs> we see a social purpose for what we do that actually, that social contribution, you know, you look at the rise of ESG, environmental, societal governance criteria for investment that, you know, that, that actually growth cannot be infinite in its current manifestations. This is very much the, you know, the narrative that, that actually responsible business has to be different than, than unfettered business. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty irresponsible. I think the narrative is irresponsible. First of all, people start businesses. They don't go out to loot the environment. You know, just look at airplanes and, and engineers. Our, our economy is basically built on engineering strength. So is yours. Yours was built on it before. We were, and we stole it, okay? We just did it at scale, okay? Now, the whole thesis of an engineer is to make the world better, okay? And that bridge fall, the bridge can't fall down. They're real empiricists. That's pretty much the way business runs. Our business executives go, don't go out to loot their consumers. The consumer is king. And it, it comes back to what Milton Friedman said, and now there's a new variation on it, but it basically comes down to your job as a business is to make profit and to grow welfare. And the real point that is always lost is when our economy grows and grows and grows, all net welfare goes up. We can't afford infrastructure reinvestment if we don't have money. So I can imagine, I think, how you're going to answer this. But when you listen to people like Carl Schwab from the World Economic Forum and other leaders of global corporations talk about this idea of, you know, their, their campaign is called the Great Reset, the sense that we're going to do things differently in the future. Well, what's your take? My first visit to Davos was probably 20 years ago, okay? And Klaus Schwab is an intellectual policy entrepreneur. Think about him in that way. So he's always in search of the next set of how you assemble words, very much like business professors talking about innovation and entrepreneurship. If your company, do you have the secrets of entrepreneurship in your company? Well, if you're the CEO of a big company, you say, oh my gosh, what do those words mean? I don't want to get caught, right? 
And I think it's the same game at Davos. Everybody goes over there. It's a huge empathy session among billionaires, right? Not much comes of it. The great global reset, we've been in the reset. Every president in the United States comes to reset our relationship with China, with Russia. Reset's getting to be a pretty damn tired word, okay? So everybody goes to Davos, they, they wring their hands. We don't have instruments to do much about it. The Paris Climate Accords, you know, nothing's going to change in the world there. We ought to talk about real stuff in terms of economic growth. And Schwab is one of those people on the side of growth is bad for human welfare. So I think it will come as no surprise when people look at your lockdown list that one of your great inspirations is from Letters to a Young Contrarian, Christopher Hitchens. Yes. The, yeah. the role of the contrarian is, is very important to you, I think. First of all, tell us about the quote and then tell us about what it means to you. <laughs> Well, you know, Christopher Hitchens writes this this marvelous book, Letters to a Young Contrarian. It's a very, very short book. He's, I think, our unfortunately, he's, he died a few years ago. I think he was our our very best, both sides of the ocean, essayist in our shared language. And he, he does raise this issue of, you know, if you're going to have an impact in the world, you have to guard against becoming a zealot. You have to be skeptical about everything you hear. And, you know, his great benefit was he had read hugely and widely, which I recommend to all aspiring entrepreneurs. You must read way beyond your field. Okay. And, you know, if it was up to me, I'd deal away with MBA programs and everybody would take a master's degree in history, particularly business history. Okay. But that's where Hitchens goes. And he basically said, if you're going to make any impact, whatever comes out of your mouth should be tested against all this history. And it has to be skeptical. So you heard it in my response about global warming and Klaus Schwab and the Davos stuff. I, I am a huge skeptic about these mechanisms. Doesn't mean I'm a skeptic about global warming. I am skeptical about what human beings can do in a concerted way intentionally to change the curve. But that's a subject for another day. Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, my skepticism is born of an empirical analysis. Yes, because I mean, he wrote that the sceptical mentality is at least as important as any armor of principle. Now, talking... Is, isn't, that, isn't that a great line? That's just mm. incredible. Yeah. But by the way, it's a torturous way to live because it's much easier than intellectual to say, oh, okay, let's wear the consensus. I'll just write another essay to enforce the consensus, right? It's a torturous way to live to basically say, could the consensus be wrong? But do you, do you think, I mean, you also mentioned the people that inspired you were people like Edison and, and Henry Ford. And, you know, they were people that that went against the grain of, of their era in, in many, many different ways. But they were also, the, I guess, these kind of inventive genius visionaries. I mean, and I suppose they were they were contrarians, too. I mean, is that what you saw in them when when you sort of you raised them in, in your lockdown list? I, I No, no, I sort of divide. There's two different types of people, okay? These are genius, completely, um, what's the, the word I want to get is they're self-referencing, which in my book, I say entrepreneurs, real successful entrepreneurs are self-referencing. They don't give a goddamn about what anybody else is talking about, what their vision is. Henry Ford was told a jillion times, this is a stupid waste of time. And there was a lot of evidence lying around America with, with startup cars and so forth. All the evidence pointed in his direction. He didn't care. He knew where he was headed, Okay. Same thing as Elon Musk, okay? Same thing with Steve Jobs. You know, these are I'm fascinated by these genius types who become totally self-referencing in terms of what they can do with a vision and execute it. And the other half of what I always admire about this 
is in their lifetimes, they built scale companies that changed everything, mm. absolutely everything. But, but do, you, do you also see that, I suppose, that what makes them the genius, I suppose, is that in the end, their ideas prevailed? Does the self-referencing, does the determine, I mean, at what point does that turn into somebody that has lost the plot, you know, has become an <laughs> autocrat? I mean, I mean, is it a pretty thin line there, do you think? Yeah. Yeah, as you were asking that question, I thought, yeah, and mental hospitals are filled with these people, okay, who couldn't make it happen, or or their vision, they were self-referencing, and whatever they were referencing was just nutso, okay? But these were guys who somehow tethered themselves to what they thought people needed as products, okay? Elon Musk, imagine this, thinks that people should be able to go to a hotel on Mars I think it's he. It could be Branson. You know, we think of that as Wigo. There's probably a day when he would got admitted to St. Saint Elizabeth's in Washington, okay, as a nutcase. But, you know, in a sense, it, it's interesting. I, I, I'm not an expert on this. So just reflect for a second. This may be changing our uber view of who's crazy, okay, because the first impulse may be to say, you know, Elon Musk is crazy. Okay, if he's crazy... Uh, how come so many people thought it wasn't quite that crazy and wanted to be on board with him? Is that his genius that drives him? You know, in the United States, we have this guy right now uh, who's doing our, uh, Barstool Sports, Portnoy, Dave Portnoy. And to watch him on television, man, I'm sure my old colleagues from Hopkins who were psychiatrists are watching him on TV thinking, this guy's a nutcase, okay? But, you know, I have a couple of sort of young middle-aged children who think this guy is a blessed genius. And if he started a company tomorrow, they'd put money behind him. And despite all of this kind of like, you know, sort of, you know, this incredible ecosystem, which, you know, to some degree defies description, it will defy logic, it will often defy established wisdom. You are a great proponent that these skills can be taught. I don't think that's a fair reading. I don't think they can be taught. I struggle with this in my course. I have eight little, uh, what I call... You spend a lot of time trying to do it then. (laughs) Yeah. I have a little exercise called Eight Exercises in Orthogonal Thinking. I haven't decided yet whether or not I can help students change you know, become skeptical or more creative or, or uh, you know, see something that could be done better, faster, cheaper. I think that's sort of the first ingredient. By the way, you know, the separation between entrepreneurship, intellectuals, and the very few folks who write about innovation is miles wide. And part of what I'm trying to do is compress those things. You can't have a successful company. And this is one of the ways I see huge wastage in human capital, particularly in the university incubators and so forth. Professors think they're supposed to be, you know, wave pom-poms and be cheerleaders, right? But but they, 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 for the most part, have never been innovators themselves or started businesses. So, so many young students are, are encouraged to operate on stuff that you or I or a sensible person would see as absolutely silly wastes of time. There'll never be a company coming out of this idea. The innovation has to be bigger. By the way, I think that's a huge macroeconomic problem that I'm dealing with in this book is it may well be that the quality of innovation in the West is falling behind the quality of innovation in China. Mm. I mean, I'm just going to press you on the on the teaching entrepreneurship thing just one last time, because you you, you did you did say about, you know, you, you, the gauntlet that you laid down to your to your fellow academics was that could it be that we lack the imagination about how to teach them 
in terms of actually, you know, not not that it was impossible, but that perhaps current thinking didn't currently stretch enough to actually make that possible. I mean, I'm I'm just wondering. I mean, you know, you you've led the the Coppen Foundation. You've been at, I guess, the the heart of efforts to try and organise thinking in some way around around entrepreneurship. I mean, I mean, do you sense that? that that is to no avail or is this something that you know it will go through the same process of innovation and change to become more useful in the future no it won't go through that change universities are finding teaching of this so economic so so lucrative financially lucrative to start these programs and you know if you look at the insights of budgets and finances in universities you know it's the same thing cash is king and whoever bringing in more money gets to, to rule so there's there's no incentive to basically they haven't run into the stone wall that says and in fact in my book i say they don't even collect data on whether or not they're successful so you can go to an incubator in university who's been in business for 10 years and over half of them never do any follow-up of their students well my gosh surgeons follow their patients right professors of business and entrepreneurship, they don't follow their students, okay? Did the surgery work? Did our intervention work? So that's a that's a real critical issue, I think. I don't think it's going to get any better. In, in fact, as I've said twice in this discussion of ours this morning is, you know, I see it in terms of a tragic waste of human capital. These students shouldn't be taking these majors in entrepreneurship. They'd be in the engineering. They should be in the engineering schools, I'm sure some of our academic listeners are going to be coming back on this interview with with lots of questions, which I shall be passing directly on to you. <laughs> I mean, let, let's have it. Let's let's just slightly move on because we're, we're almost out of time. But, but what I've noticed is um, I was reading your lockdown list with with great interest, and obviously we will publish that that alongside this episode. And you know, I, I I could see what you were reading. I could see your inspirations, your your musical choices, and then I saw that you are watching. What I think is quintessential entrepreneurial entertainment, Shit's Creek. T- tell us a little bit about it and why why you've enjoyed it so much. Well, first of all, like most people in the United States that I've talked to about, they had the same phenomenon. They had to watch it up, up around episode four. You thought, no, nah, this is a waste of time. I'm not going to watch it anymore, right? But it's like a slow motion train wreck. How could this guy who was so successful do so something so stupid and then show up in this no-count town trying to buy a motel as the foundation of his new new success, okay? And everything about it is a crazy show. But it is captivating in the sense of he can't put down his burden of trying to restart, okay? And in a sense, that's the most captivating part of it. It, it is the restart, isn't it? Yeah. I, mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, obviously, Eugene Le- Levy's character, Johnny Rose, you know, the former video store magnet that, that is – that you know, that in the end becomes some sort of destination marketing guru in sort of yeah. you know sort of reviving reviving the town. But it felt that there was a, you know actually it's not just me saying this. I mean, I, if you skim the internet, you'll see that Schitt's Creek has got things like lessons in leadership, the entrepreneurial story, lessons to marketeers. I mean, it is going to fast become the sort of thing, Carl. That I'm sure you'll be lecturing on in future years to come. I don't know. I I just fascinated with the whole thing, and in fact, the best part was not. One of the episodes, it was the hour afterward where the family, because the, the uh, co-star is his son, his homosexual son. And they talked about all the implications for for how homosexuality was looked at through that program and, and how wide it, you know, what a different legitimacy it gave the phenomena. And It's a know, wonderfully kind show, isn't it, I think, yeah, in terms I, of I, how, how it builds that sense of community and togetherness. Yeah. 
Uh, actually, I was in tears when I watched the, the sequel in terms of how they made it mm. and how it drew people together. And it was ingenious how they recruited people to be in that show. It was fantastic. Mm. Last mm -hmm. question. You've given a tip to listeners. Your your first job is never your first job. Your current job is your real first job. Tell tell us about that with a with a final thought in terms of I guess the future of work and the future as you see it. Yeah, well, you must remember I teach when I went back to the university. I taught at Hopkins. I only taught graduate students. When I went to Syracuse University as a university professor, I could basically write my own ticket. And I said I won't teach entrepreneurship. I'll teach innovation and I'll teach a course on how flourishing cities fail. And it has a lot to do with economics. But the last session of both of my classes, I talked to my students as a senior professor about life lessons. And, and one of the five or six things I always emphasize, because they're at the cusp of going into the market and they wring their hands up and down with me as an advisor. Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I take the other job? By the way, a critical issue in my book says, Never start as an entrepreneur unless you've got a really crackerjack idea and you've determined that yourself. Otherwise, take a job not with a startup, but with a giant company. OK, it's like getting a whole other education. And that leads to uh, the observation you make, because the thing I keep saying to my students is, you know, just get comfortable, get a get a job. And then you'll understand that that's not your first job unless it happens to be. Everything works right. It, it meets your psyche. It meets your psychological needs. And, and you're happy there, okay? But I was really trained as a labor economist. And, you know, people, if you look at it in terms of career ladders, sometimes the person in high school you thought was going to be president of the United States ends up being deputy coach of a college you never heard of, right? How that happened. They got to some point where they were happy and their ambition sort of that other people laid on them appears to have been satisfied or they burned out and that's what they did, Okay. So I, I point this out in, in this wonderful time of Zoom, when I taught my last course on innovation, rather than getting people through this arduous journey to get to Syracuse University up in the Northeast snow country, Zoom permitted me to get 10 fabulous entrepreneurs to come to my class for an hour. Okay, people I knew real well, right? And at the end of it, I said to the students, so what did you learn from all these 10 visitors? And what they said was, their careers were all accidental. I said, game over. You, you learned it, okay? And that's going to be your career too. Only 8% of you are going to be working in the major you trained in by the time you're 35, okay? That's, that's how the, the – and you should actually know it ahead of time because you're going to go to school all over again. Learn all these lessons. And, and the big one for entrepreneurs is, okay, you're going to learn how companies innovate, and you're going to maybe – some of you will come to the point where you basically say, I love my company, as I said before, they can't – see what I see they could do to make this company richer, okay, and better. And I'm breaking out. And, and my book tells the story of a bunch of those guys who love their companies. But also the accidental career and that yeah. mm -hmm. serendipity that got them there. Carl Schramm, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. That's all we've got time for for this week. And we'll see you again very soon. I hope so. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. 